we're studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. Um, two weeks ago, we had discussed uh, the position of tongues. Uh, it's secondary to prophecy for uh, reasons Paul will get into a little bit more. But uh, I believe probably the reason people wanted the gift of tongue is that you could fake that. You couldn't fake prophecy, but you could fake the tongue because they had a, an element in the church that um, just yabbered. They weren't speaking a foreign language. They just yammered, kind of like people does today. And uh, it, you couldn't challenge them on it because who's to say whether it was true or not? Well, Paul has uh, laid down some rules that if somebody did want to pretend to be speaking in tongues, uh, he laid down some rules where they wouldn't be able to simply because nobody could understand them. And basically it boils down to if you can't be understood, then hush, don't talk, don't make a noise. So uh, this, whole, this whole chapter is primarily about the abuse of, of speaking in tongues. It's kind of odd when you think about it because this is a problem that's come down to us in the 20th century. Uh, there are still those who, who claim to be speaking in a tongue when they're just uh, jabbering. Well, the rules Paul applied by back then, if they abide by those rules, that's going to come to a halt because you're not supposed to be disturbing the church assembly making a lot of noise if you can't be understood if it's not intelligible you're not supposed to make noise so uh, the the tongue speaking we see today that's really quite popular uh, it's becoming more popular again uh, a lot of the um, what do you call it the lighthouse is that what the i don't know the river places like that uh, they're using tongue speaking and such things again. Uh, and if they go by the rules Paul lays down here, that comes to a halt quickly. Uh, so that was uh, what we discussed two weeks ago. Today we'll begin uh, discussing the purpose of tongues. This, this is verses 20 through 25. Whenever uh, one of our Bible offers spends an entire chapter on one subject, this is a subject that's going to be a big deal. Uh, most of the time, throughout, uh, throughout time, I suppose, uh, it's going to be a big deal. They usually don't spend so much time on one matter. Uh, brethren, do not be children in understanding. Uh, don't, don't behave like a child would. Think. However, in malice, be babes. Uh, Wickedness, uh, wrongdoing, uh, backbiting, judging, things like that. Uh, when it comes to that kind of behavior, be like a child. Uh, but in understanding, you need to be mature. You need to use the gray matter between your ears. Uh, you need to think. Thinking is very important. Uh, it's more important than feeling. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis put on feeling. I feel this, I feel that. Well, it's not the way we're supposed to do. We're supposed to think. We're supposed to understand reason. God gave us the ability to reason. We're supposed to reason. 
things through. Is this logical? Is it rational to draw such conclusions? Tongue speaking, for example, is it rational for people to be just yammering? Is, is that logical that the church would behave that way? 30 people up, doing all that stuff? What good is it going to do if you think with your mind, instead of just going by what makes you feel good, you'll see that that's not the way it ought to be. In Matthew 18, 1 through 4, and again Mark 10, basically talking about the same subject, verses 13 through 15, our Lord said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like a child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking to us. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child, that is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We're taught by Jesus to be childlike when it comes to our forgiveness, for, for example. Two kids, they get into a fight, and we've probably all seen this happen, and their mothers get into a fight because the children are fighting. And next thing you know, the kids are over there playing, and the mothers are still over here fighting. They, they can't get over it. Kids get over it quickly. Uh, they'll get mad, get their feelings hurt, and they'll cry and cry and cry. And the next thing you know, they're playing like nothing ever happened. We'll be like that is what our Lord is wanting us to know. Be like that. Uh, learn to forgive. Put it aside. Put it away. Uh, have these childlike characteristics because this is a good thing. If you don't learn to possess such qualities, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, again, Ephesians 4, 14, Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child thinks. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. What we're taught, I believe, is accurate in scripture is that we are to be childlike, yet not be childish. And this is what Paul's saying. Do not be children in understanding. In understanding, you need to be mature. But in malice, when it comes to wickedness, things like that, do like the kids do. It's a good quality to possess. We have to differentiate between the two. That takes thinking. We have to think. What does the Lord mean when he tells us to be childlike? What does the Lord mean when he tells us not to be childish? We understand it, and then we are to live it out. Christianity is a, is a religion that involves thinking. And this is not the attitude of most religious people in what we'll call Christendom. Mostly it's about feeling. What do I feel? What makes me feel good? What makes me feel spiritual? Ronald was talking the other day 
in a Bible class, I believe it was, that uh, people said they feel spiritual in a different setting of worship. It makes me feel spiritual. And what he said was, which was hitting the nail right on the head, was they're using carnal things to make them feel spiritual. How do you do that? <clears throat> a spiritual person is a person who thinks <clears throat> like Jesus thinks. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I can't think of any way we could be more spiritual than to think like Jesus thinks. And that's what Paul's saying. A spiritual person is a thinking person. It's a person who thinks, reasons, understands, draws the right conclusions, and makes that a part of their daily living. Childlike, not childish. It's, uh, it's sad to me, very sad, that uh, so many people view Christianity as a, a, a religion of feelings without thought. If you are spiritual and you know you are spiritual, you're going to feel good. Feelings comes after knowledge, not before. <clears throat> it's when I know I'm saved, that's when I rejoice. You call the Ethiopian nobleman after he was baptized by Philip. What did he do? He went on his way back to Ethiopia rejoicing. He wasn't rejoicing before he met Philip, but he was rejoicing after he met Philip. What was the difference? Now he knew that Jesus was his Savior that he'd been born again into the kingdom of God because Philip had taught him. And knowing that, that made the nobleman happy and he rejoiced. So the feelings come after the knowledge, not before. But too many times it's, uh, it's what makes me feel good. This is what I like, this is what I do. Makes me feel good. Sometimes, Sometimes the Lord makes me feel bad. He ever make you feel bad? The Lord, did the Lord ever step on your toes? Mm -mm. Sometimes he steps on our toes. What happens? We feel bad. Because we know we're not doing what he wants us to do. We know we're going to have to change our ways. So we do. We change our ways. We try to be what he wants us to be. And now I can be happy because I was wrong, but now I'm right. Getting my toes stepped on was a good thing because it led me to repentance and salvation. Rejoicing comes after the thinking. Don't, don't forget that because it's so important. Things have changed a lot just in the last 10 years 
Things have changed a lot. In the law, it is written, when he refers to the law, he's referring to Moses and the prophets. He's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. I know it's not all law, but when Paul refers to the law, he's referring to the whole enchilada, Genesis all the way through Malachi, everything. In the law, it is written, this comes from Isaiah's book, chapter 28, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me. Um, you know, this, uh, this quotation has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about. This is one of the great challenges of trying to understand the Old Testament prophets sometimes. They don't think like you and I think. They, they're very different. He's taking a statement, Paul is. He's taking the statement, and he's applying it to the modern situation of the first century. But what he's talking about in context has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about. But he appeals to a rule. And according to Paul, this rule is applicable to the first century situation. Let me give you an example. Uh, with Israel, Israel was um, sinning against the Lord. And the Lord, of course, sent prophets. And they were trying to persuade Israel to uh, quit doing what they're doing and start behaving properly. But time after time, they, they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't listen to what he had to say. So the Lord decided he was going to send the Assyrians into Israel, and he was going to teach a lesson through them. He refers to the Assyrians as the rod of his chastisement, just like you might take a belt and spank a child with it. Well, the Lord's belt was the Assyrian military. He would bring them into Israel, and they would spank Israel, trying to get Israel to repent. This is what Isaiah is talking about. With men of other tongues and other lips, men who speak a different language, men who speak in tongues, okay? This is where Paul's making the application. It's not the situation, but it's what actually happened. With men who speak a different language, the Lord said, I will speak to Israel. And yet for all that, even though the Assyrians have spoke to them, not with words, but with weapons of war, even though I have spoke to them, they still will not listen to me. The chastisement they experienced, the shellacking they took from the Assyrian nation was supposed to cause them to stop and think that the Lord must be upset. Look what's happening. Things have gone very wrong. But they didn't think that way. They didn't even think about the Lord. Well, the world's in, in a chaotic state, they thought. But they never applied the, the, the whipping they got from the Assyrians. They never applied it as it was uh, the rod of God's chastisement. But now this is what Paul's taking. With men 
who spoke other tongues, the Lord spoke to his people. And for all that, they didn't understand the message that he was sending to them. Now, Paul's using that and applying it to Corinth. You can see it has nothing to do with anything except that with all the yammering with other tongues, it didn't accomplish anything. No one could understand what's being said. He takes that lesson and applies it to this lesson. Sometimes it's very hard to figure out these prophecies. They can be very challenging because uh, we think differently. We have a different way we think, and it can be hard. Uh, again, uh, Moses, uh, the Lord warned Israel all the way back to Moses. You're going back about 700 years before the event of Isaiah even took place. 700 years earlier, before Israel had gone into the land of Canaan, the Lord speaking to them in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, if you do good, good things will happen. But if you do bad, bad things will happen. Ball's in your court. You do what you want to do, and I'll do what I have to do, basically is what the Lord is saying. But down here in verse, 40, verse 49, he's speaking about a time when Israel is going to become very rebellious. It's 700 years in the future. They're going to become very rebellious, and when they do, Jehovah is going to deal with them. The Lord, Jehovah, will bring a nation against you from afar. That's the Assyrian nation. The Lord said he would whistle. <laughs> and when he whistled, they would come. I used to call my cows up that way. When I wanted to feed my cows or work on them, I'd just whistle. And them cows would come around him. Well, the Lord said he whistled for the Assyrians. And when he whistled, they would come. He can move an army here, over there. He can do whatever he chooses to do because he is the Almighty One. The Lord will bring a nation against you, Israel. They'll come from far off, from the end of the earth, and they'll be swift as the eagle flies. They'll be a nation whose language you will not understand, people with another tongue. The Lord would deal with them accordingly by using people who speak another tongue. I think there was probably something in the future of the church of Corinth if they didn't quit speaking in these tongues, those who were faking it, and mostly that's what was going on. There were some that actually spoke in a tongue or a language, but for the most part, I don't think that's what was going on. Therefore, <clears throat> tongues, tongues are for a sign. That's the purpose of a tongue. <clears throat> Not to those who believe. Why? They don't need a sign. Believers don't have to have a sign. I used to, uh, I used to pray that God would show me a sign that would tell me basically what I should or shouldn't do. I even asked him for it. Lord, give me a sign. I don't know what to do. Give me a sign, please, so I'll know what to do. 
believers don't need a sign. I didn't know that at the time. I wouldn't have asked for it. Believers don't need a sign. The Lord allowed people to speak in tongues. Why? So they could have a sign. Unbelievers. You remember on the day of Pentecost, one of the things that flabbergasted everybody that was there, we hear these Galileans all speaking in our language. And there were several different languages represented there. And they marveled at the fact that these men were able to do that. Nobody can do this. But they were doing it. What, what was the purpose of them speaking that way? It was a sign to the unbelievers that these men are speaking by the power, the inspiration of God. And you need to listen to what they have to say. That was the purpose of the tongue. It wasn't to build up the church. It wasn't to educate people. It wasn't for ed edification. The purpose behind the tongue primarily was a sign that God is with this person. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to the unbeliever. Believers don't need a sign. They believe. They have faith. They don't have to have a sign to believe, they already do. But prophesying, oh, no, that's a whole other matter. That's not for a sign. Prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. The prophecy for, for us, for example, would be educational. We would learn. The preacher would come. He would speak to us. He would reveal the divine will enable us to know what it was. That wasn't for the unbeliever. The unbeliever isn't moved by such things. But the believer is. Because now we can add faith to faith. The tongue was for unbelievers. I told this one time to a Pentecostal preacher. They spoke in tongues. I worked with him. And uh, he, was, he was very proud that they spoke in tongues because it was indicative of the fact that God was with them. And I showed him this passage. I said, if you're speaking in tongues, the purpose of tongues is a sign for unbelievers. It's not to edify the church. It's to convince unbelievers. Speaking in tongues, therefore, wasn't a sign of spirituality. Speaking in tongues was a sign that there was no faith. So he was boasting of how spiritual his church was, and if it had been true, which I didn't believe it anyway, but if it had been true, it was a sign that they had no faith in that group. Just the opposite of what he thought. You read and we think, we think, what is the Lord te telling us? What's he teaching us? We know the truth then. And when somebody says something that's not true, we know it's not true, and we won't be deceived by it because we read the scriptures. We think, 
rational, reasonably. And we draw the right conclusions. So they had they had the whole thing. Uh, they were all messed up at car rent. They had so many problems, it wasn't funny. But uh, they were using signs. They were they were faking. I got I speak in tongues. That makes me a great spiritual man. And Paul said, No, it doesn't. It means you deal with unbelief. It's not about faith. Just the opposite. Therefore, since that's the case, if the whole church comes together in one place, like we'll do at 10 o'clock, minus our brothers and sisters on the boat, when the whole church comes together in one place, congregational gathering, and all of you speak with tongues, everybody speaks a foreign language or jibber-jabber, whatever you choose. And everybody, here we are, we're in this assembly, and we all start talking at the same time, and we're all, some are speaking different languages. I'd be going yabba-dabba-doo and tigger-doo or something like that because I can't speak a foreign language. I would just be making a bunch of noise. Here we are, and somebody walks into the congregation and they look about, and they see what's going on. What are they going to think? Well, you people are nuts. What, you bunch of, when I was a kid, there was a Pentecostal church that met a couple blocks over. And uh, we used to go over there and peep through the window, and we'd watch them. And uh, I never seen nothing. I got scared actually the first time I saw it. I didn't know what they were doing in there, but uh, they were jumping around and rolling in the floor and hollering and carrying on. And uh, I was probably eight, nine year old, and it frightened me because I thought somebody's going to get hurt. Uh, this is what Paul's talking about. When you behave that way and somebody comes into the assembly, what do they think? Well, me, I was scared. I know a woman one time, she went to a tent meeting up here in Cougarville and uh, somebody invited her to go, another woman at work. And she was in there and uh, sitting listening and the preacher got to hunting for the devil. The devil was in the building. And he got to going around through the crowd. He was hunting for the devil. I'm getting warmer. I'm getting warmer. And when he got to where Jenny was, he said, the devil's in you. And she went, who, me? <laughs> she was terrified. What happens when the people come into such assembly? They think you're nuts. Something's wrong. And this is what Paul's saying. If the whole church comes together in one place and everybody starts speaking with a tongue at the same time and there come in those who are uninformed, unbelievers, they don't know anything about the church of our Lord, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Well, of course they will. God's people aren't supposed to look like they're out of their mind. They're supposed to be intelligent. They're supposed to be rational, logical, informed. When somebody asks us why we believe what we believe, we give reasons. It's not because I feel it in my heart. 
When I start feeling stuff in my heart, I'm going to the doctor. Something's wrong. It's because we have seen the evidence and we've drawn the conclusion that God is, that the Bible is the Word of God, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I know it's true because, and then there's the evidence. Not acting like you're out of your mind. Not making up flimsy excuses. How do you know there's God? You know the most, the most used answer to that question? Because. How do you know there's God? Because. Everybody knows there's God. What does that prove? I was thinking about becoming a Christian. Uh, I went to Catholic Church for a long time, and uh, I didn't know or understand much. But when I was going through Churches of Christ, I started going out with BR. I wanted everybody to like me, so I went to church with her. And that's what guys do. Uh, and I, I would ask questions. I ask preachers. I figure preachers know. They're preachers. And uh, I, w I wanted to know how they knew God existed. And uh, no one ever told me. They knew God existed because the Bible says so. Well, how do you know God wrote the Bible? Because God said so. It was it was circular reasoning. Whenever I would ask a question, why do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Why do you believe he was raised from the dead? Uh, I couldn't get an answer. I didn't find an answer. Uh, I forgot the name of the guy. <laughs> What's that big, tall scientist's name? Who? No, uh, one of our brethren. Uh, he was up here in Cookville. He started Apologetics Press. I can't believe I forgot his name. Bert Thompson. Bert Thompson, that's him. Had fingers about that long. Never seen longer fingers in my life. He get up there, he get up there and talk. I, I couldn't believe how long his fingers were. Uh, at any rate, I started hanging out with him up there in Cookville, and he answered my question. First guy that answered my question, so I took up with him, and uh, he helped me learn some stuff. But uh, we have to give a reason. That's what Peter said, wasn't it? First Peter three fifteen. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Always be ready to give an answer to every person who asks you about the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Give a reason. <clears throat> Why do you believe there is God? Give a reason for that. It's not because. 
And it's not because I feel it in my heart. It's not because, well, God said so in the Bible. You can't prove God exists by the Bible. That's circular reasoning. It proves nothing. But there are reasons. And give people reasons for your belief. Christianity is a very logical religion. It's very reasonable. It's rational. Uh, some religious people, they find it disturbing when you say something like that. We don't, we don't walk by reasoning. We walk by faith. Well, faith is reason. <laughs> faith comes from where? The Word of God. So faith is reason. It's not something we just feel in our heart. It's something we thought about and we draw a conclusion that this must be the truth. When we have faith like that, we have faith that can withstand a tornado. Because once we know, once we know, nobody can take that away from us. It's ours for the duration. I guess you understand I'm trying to pound the importance of knowledge into us. It's so important to know when we know, we know. Yeah, Jeff. You got That's not just the easiest, that's actually the way we reason. Uh, the creation demonstrates the creator. And it just takes, uh, what do you call it, common sense. If there's a painting, there's a, a rug. No, it ain't a rug, what is that? Quilt. There's a quilt hanging up back there. I didn't see anybody make it, but I know somebody made it. Well, how do you know that? The quilt is proof. When there's a quilt, there has to be a quilt maker. If there's a painting, there has to be a painter. If there's a building, there has to be a builder. We know that, that's common sense. If there's a creation, there has to be a creator. That's, of course, what people deny. But that's actually logic 
And logic, of course, is science. So you're proving the existence of God scientifically by using logic properly and proving the Bible to be the inspired word of God. The Bible proves itself, just like Jeff said, a fulfillment of the prophecies. I mentioned just a moment ago uh, Isaiah prophecy speaking about something that was going to take place 700 years in the future. And it came to pass just like Moses said it would. How did Moses know that was going to happen? Well, somebody said, well, he got lucky. Okay, let's say he got lucky. Let's go through the 330 prophecies that speak about Jesus as being the Son of God who came into the world to be offered up as a sacrifice for sin. Let's go through the 330 prophecies and see how many of them were fulfilled just as they were issued. Now we got 330 pieces of evidence. You know what staggered my mind first on the inspiration of the Bible? Uh, usually when I talk, everything is either up or down. Uh, I, you're going up to uh, Michigan. Well, actually you're going north to Michigan. Up is, you're speaking now of uh, topographical terms. Uh, it has to do with sea elevation. Whether you go up on a mountain, you go up to the Smoky Mountains, or you go down to the Dead Sea, whatever. Okay? Uh, the Bible uses both descriptives when they speak about travel. It speaks about going up and down topographically. And it also speaks about north and south, east and west. You're not going up when you go to Michigan. You're going north. We go southeast to Florida. Uh, we use the compass points. The Bible has thousands of references, thousands of references to going up or going down. There are people who have gone through the Bible and checked every single one of those references. Were they really going up or down? Sometimes they were on a different continent and they say we must go up to such and such place. Did they really go up? In every case, without exception, every single case, the Bible writers were correct. They were going th that way according to the compass points, and they were going up or down according to uh, topography. Thousands of times, I ran a test on myself to see how many times I could get something right. I got 27% of the time I was right. The rest of the time I was wrong. I didn't know when I was going up or down. I was just guessing. And sometimes you think you're going up when you're going north, but you're actually going down. Uh, it's something you just can't fake. Here's the, here's the point. How did Bible writers, from farmers to kings, from continent to continent, over a span of 1,500 years, 
They didn't know each other. How could the Bible writers be correct in every instant without fail? That's the only logical answer to that question. They had to be inspired by a higher power. There's no way they could have done that. When I first latched on to that, it blew my mind. Yeah, Jeff. What Jeff said, most of the time, if not all the time, the prophets had no idea what they were writing or speaking about. They didn't know. Uh, uh, Isaiah was speaking about God bringing in uh, another power. He didn't know who they were. There was no Assyrian nation when the prophecy was made. There was no Babylonian nation. At that time, you could have... Isaiah prophesied Babylon, you know, somebody could say, what's a Babylon? What's a Babylon? There wasn't, there was a Babylon. Nobody knew what it was. It was a little place. It was like Gainesboro, Tennessee. Nobody knows what a Gainesboro, Tennessee is. They know what a Washington, D.C. is and New York City is, but they don't know what a Gainesboro is, and nobody knew what a Babylon was. But Isaiah's prophesied about Babylon falling to the Persians or Babylon defeating the Assyrians. He had no idea what he was talking about. But he was right. Chris, uh, Chris studies that more than I do. Uh, he's, I think, a much better teacher than I am on that particular subject. He was, uh, he was fascinated with apologetics, and he spent a lot of time on it. If I was you guys, I'd kind of give him the elbow and make him teach a class because it's very interesting. I really love that kind of a study as long as somebody else is teaching. 